Please join with me in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So Western Christmas has come and gone. Our Orthodox brothers and sisters just had their Christmas celebrations this past Monday. And so most of us have seen fit to put away the Christmas trees and the decorations. Although caveat, if you really want to keep Christmas going a little bit longer, you, can, you might consider a stint with the Armenian Orthodox who celebrate Christmas on January 19. But if Christmas is over, the Armenian Orthodox exception notwithstanding, our Gospel reading this morning, which narrates Jesus' baptism in the Jordan, continues the Christmas focus on the mystery of the Incarnation, the mystery of God's fleshly identification with sinful humanity. But this Gospel account, as we'll hear, brings with it a note of apprehension. John the Baptist reminds the crowds flocking to him for the baptism of repentance that the coming Messiah will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And with that fire comes judgment, the promise that the chaff of humanity will burn with unquenchable fire. The gospel today thus starkly reminds us that the incarnation is not about a warm and fuzzy validation of human beings as we are, but instead involves judgment on our individual and our corporate bodies. The Messiah is bringing baptism by fire. Dare we welcome this baptism? For who can endure it? The Gospel according to Luke, the third chapter, verses 13 through 22. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. But Herod, the ruler who had been rebuked by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the evil things that Herod had done, added to them by shutting up John in a prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened, and when uh, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. The word of the Lord. Shine, Jesus, shine. Fill this land with the Father's glory. The setting, the medieval era chapel in the Lutheran church in the Lutheran Church compound in Jerusalem's old city, where the English-speaking Lutheran congregation meets for worship. Blaze, spirit blaze, set our hearts on fire. The date, it's the fall of 2000. The second Palestinian uprising against the Israeli occupation has just started, 
and I'm a little over a year into my term as the Mennonite Central Committee representative for Palestine, just starting my fifth year in the country. The mood in the congregation is somber. Hopes had temporarily flourished in the late 1990s that peace between Israelis and Palestinians was on the horizon. Those hopes were now beginning to fade, replaced by the dawning realization that the Israeli military occupation was becoming ever more entrenched, and with it, cycles of violence and counterviolence. Flow, river, flow. Flood the nations with grace and mercy. Send forth your word, Lord, and let there be light. This growing despair about the political situation in 2000 was accompanied for me by growing personal despair about my own brokenness. As a husband, as a father, as a son and brother, as a boss and coworker, the words of the Apostle Paul were ringing increasingly true for me. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very things that I hate. So that particular Sunday in the fall of 2000, I had come to worship with a very lively sense of God's judgment on sinful political and economic systems, the dispossess and kill to be sure, but also on me as an individual creature who has fallen away from the good nature God fashioned for me. And with an almost desperate need to hear of God's grace, to be reminded of the promise that through Jesus Christ, God has redeemed us and that God's blazing spirit is purifying and refining us. And that word of grace did come, although somewhat unexpectedly. The Yale-educated pastor of the congregation typically had us singing classic Lutheran hymns, and there is certainly a strong emphasis on grace in those hymns. But also it turned out that that same pastor was incredibly fond of the praise song, Shine, Jesus, Shine. And this Sunday was the first Sunday that he chose to introduce it to the congregation. Now, I should be clear, not only did I not grow up in a congregation that sang praise songs, I was raised to have a studied, and in retrospect, somewhat class-based, disdain for praise songs. Praise songs were emotional, narcissistic fluff, whereas we, my family, were sober, sober, cerebral Christians. Or in the words of a Pentecostal friend of mine in high school, we were the frozen chosen. <laughs> anyway, I confess that as the music began that Sunday morning to shine Jesus shine, my skepticism kicked into overdrive, and I was silently cursing the pastor for not going to a tried and true Lutheran hymn like a mighty fortress is our God. Yet as we finished the chorus and moved into the verses, I felt this knee-jerk skepticism begin to drain away, and with my mind and body starting to focus on the promise of a refined humanity transformed into and restored through God's image in Christ. The verses, for those of you not familiar with them. Lord, I come into your awesome presence from the shadows into your radiance. By the blood I may enter your brightness, Search me, try me, consume all my darkness, shine on me. And as we gaze on your kingly brightness, so our faces display your likeness, ever changing from glory to glory, mirrored here, may, I may our lives tell your story, shine on me. And as we sang, I felt a sudden urge to raise my hand in the air. And that was met by my internal voice of skepticism. You don't do things like that, I reminded myself. 
you'll feel awkward and conspicuous. Yet the desire to raise my hand persisted, and I was just about to do so when a friend of mine who had accompanied us to church that morning, a friend who shared my suspicions of praise songs, leaned into me and whispered, tongue firmly in cheek, you can raise your arm if you want to. And needless to say, that had the effect of quashing the pull to raise my arm and in praise and with a wave of embarrassed self-consciousness flooding over me. Now the point of this story, to the extent that there is one, is not an unequivocal defense of praise songs or of charismatic worship styles. True as I've grown older, I've become, I've become more open to such worship and have even found myself, somewhat to my surprise, with hand raised in the air in such services. But my mind went back to this incident when I was preparing this sermon because of the lyrics, not the musical style, of Shine, Jesus, Shine. The songwriter's prayer to God that our darkness be consumed by God's blazing spirit. Search me, try me, consume all my darkness, so that we might display God's likeness in the everyday actions of our bodies. Mirrored here, may our, may our lives tell your story. And with these lyrics, the songwriter has done a moving job of capturing the promise of baptism by fire. I say promise, but then I go back to our gospel reading of this morning, and then baptism by fire seems rather like something to be feared and dreaded. John describes the Messiah's coming with a winnowing fork in hand, ready to separate the wheat from the chaff, with the chaff then cast into unquenchable fire. Here we have one meaning of the fire God sends. Fire represents apocalyptic judgment, the breaking in of consummation as conflagration. The temptation for us, at least the temptation for me, is to mentally distance myself from the threat of this passage and to run too quickly to the promise of being gathered into, like wheat, into God's granaries. The most extreme version of this temptation is when not only do Christians exempt themselves from the judgment of messianic fire, but grant themselves the right to help mete out such fiery judgment. One thinks, for example, of our zealous Anabaptist forebearers in Munster, who upended the social order, eager to get down to the business of helping God take care of the chaff of humanity. Or to take a much more recent example, on a new TV sit situation comedy this past Thursday, the fictional President of the United States fl flippantly remarks during a press conference almost as an afterthought, oh yeah, we took out a terrorist cell, left nothing but rubble. An incredibly glib and sour line for a sitcom, which treats the fiery terror being rained down in Pakistan by U.S. drones as a punchline. Or think of the Manichaean policy proposals put forward by the National Rifle Association that assert that only good guys with guns stop bad guys with guns. But more prosaically, I'm guessing we can all think of times in which, along with the Pharisees, we have piously and confidently assumed that we are safe and secure in God's granary, all while praying thankfully to God that we are not like those tax collectors who will rightly burn like chaff. This temptation of aligning ourselves with the righteous while mentally and in our hearts consigning others to fiery judgment must be resisted. Instead, when faced with the Messiah's arrival, we must ask along with the prophet Malachi, who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? With Paul, we must include ourselves in the confession, none is righteous, 
No, not one. When faced with the proclamation of messianic judgment, surely the only honest or non-self-deceptive course of action is to acknowledge and confess that we rightly stand under judgment, that in our inmost selves we compromise our worship of God through acts of idolatry, both small and large, and that we are enmeshed in and benefit from systems of oppression. The dividing line between wheat and chaff does not run between and separate persons, but rather runs right through each one of us. Recognizing the chaff in our individual and our corporate lives, knowing that we have forsaken God through countless actions, we are left to plead to God with the psalmist, do not turn your servant away in anger, you who have been my help. Do not cast me off, do not forsake me, O God of my salvation. The good news of Jesus' baptism and of our baptism is the good news of the incarnation, that God has not left us alone in our sin and our brokenness, but has become one with us, bearing the judgment we deserve on himself. While the prophet Isaiah was not specifically referencing baptism in the passage read earlier this morning, Christian commentators have over the centuries turned to Isaiah's words to make sense of baptism's mystery. In our baptisms, we remember God's promise to the Israelites that when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you, and when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. The baptism by fire that John declared the Messiah was bringing is indeed a baptism of judgment. But as Paul reminds us in the epistle to the Romans, this is a judgment borne by Jesus in his death. When we are baptized, therefore, we are baptized, Paul explains, into Jesus' death and resurrection and into the consummation of our sin that that death has brought about. Finally, the gospel accounts of Jesus' baptism make clear that the baptism of fire that Jesus brings is not only a baptism of judgment. The descent of the Spirit upon Jesus at his baptism also evokes the fiery descent of the Spirit onto Jesus' disciples at Pentecost. The baptism of fire brings the fire of purification, of sanctification, restoring us to the image of God in which we were created so that we might mirror God's story in our individual and our corporate lives. Now, my family, Sam, Kate, and Sonia, have patiently put up with me and telling, with me telling them again and again that I'm the only member of the family who's been baptized the correct way, the Church of the Brethren ordained way, that is, immersed three times forward. And when Kate and Sam chose to be baptized here at East Chestnut, I was, I confess, disappointed that their baptism would be by sprinkling rather than by immersion. The disappointment didn't stem from any grand theological objection, but rather simply reflected a visceral visceral preference for the tactile experience of immersion. But my irrational objections were calmed as I began to reflect on the timing of baptism at East Chestnut. While While in many traditions, baptisms are scheduled to coincide with the Easter celebration, underscoring the connection between baptism and our justification through Jesus' death and resurrection, At East Chestnut, baptisms are typically held at Pentecost, with the sprinkling of the water on the baptizens' heads 
evoking the descent of the Spirit onto Jesus, onto the disciples at Pentecost. This baptism by fire fulfills the messianic promise proclaimed by Malachi, a promise often during, read during Advent. For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the descendants of Levi and refine them like gold and silver until they present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. This purification is not something that we do or even contribute to. It's something that God does. If matters were solely up to us, then John's proclamation of the coming Messiah and of the baptism by fire should rightly leave us in dread and terror. For who indeed can endure the day of his coming? But the baptism of fire means that through no merit of our own and by God's grace alone, our individual, congregational, and social lives and structures have been and are being purified, refined so that they might be acceptable offerings to God. This is difficult gospel to receive and believe, because if we look candidly at our individual and social lives, we know that they are far from pure and acceptable offerings. The answer to that recognition isn't to try harder to be pure and acceptable, but rather to cling to the good news that in the baptism of fire, we are not utterly consumed, but are instead being refined and purified. That is good news to celebrate and to share with others with zeal. May it be so. Amen.